For the last few weeks, we've been going through the different signs that are recorded in, in John's Gospel. And this morning, we've come to the fifth sign that is recorded. Uh, and that is when Jesus walks on the water. This is uh, recorded in John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 25, if you'd like to follow along in, uh, in your own Bibles there. So this sign, you know, up to this point... Uh, well, last week, if you remember, whenever we saw the feeding of the 5,000, we actually looked at some verses right before this and then also some verses after this. And this is another miracle that's just kind of included in there. And it's not one that it's it's a lot of verses that are about it, but yet it's still a very important sign. And it's one of them that John saw fit, even though he only recorded just a handful of signs. He wanted us to get this one. He wanted us to see this one and to learn something from it. So. Let's learn something from it. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that the only boat, uh, that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And uh, of course, last week we kind of looked at some of those other verses. But I wanted to in include that part of the story because it's, it's kind of amazing to me that, that we just we see that they realized this miracle in different ways. And they realized it at different times. The disciples, obviously, who were in that boat... They started realizing it by the time they saw him walking around that, you know, something's not exactly normal about this. I mean, when is the last time that you've been out on a boat and you've seen somebody walking on the water? It doesn't happen. It didn't happen to them either, but yet it was happening to them in that moment. And they actually became afraid, is what it says. But there's, there's something that we can learn about Jesus from this story. And there's something also that we can learn uh, about uh, this sign. And what we should learn about God uh, from this. So this morning, uh, as we look at this story, I want us to make three comparisons that are found in this story. Uh, the first comparison that I want us to see is light versus darkness. And you might be thinking right now, what does that have to do with this story? Well, did you notice that in verse 17, it specifically says that by now it was dark. And Jesus had not yet joined them. See, John is one of these guys who he wrote some pretty amazing things. He, he kept talking about light and darkness. Uh, and also sometimes he would call it night, you know, different things like that. And he was contrasting those. You see, all the way back in chapter one of John, he's been doing this and he's been telling you about who Jesus is and the importance of having the light, Jesus Christ, with you. For instance... When we see John chapter 1, beginning in verses 4 through 9, uh, John is talking about Jesus. And he says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And, and everything about what John is saying right here is saying Jesus Christ is this light. Then he says, look, John the Baptist, he was a great guy. He wasn't the light. He was just a test- testimony to the light. He was testifying about the one who truly is the light. So when you have Jesus, you have light. And the light makes all the difference in the world in which we live. For an example of how John uses the term, uh, this time it'll be nighttime. When you fast forward in John's gospel to John chapter 13, and by the way, I am just, I, I am by no means trying to share with you every passage that John talks about light or night or, or darkness or anything like that. I'm just kind of giving you examples to show you, oh yeah, he does use light to talk about Jesus. Well, right here in John 13, he's hinting that without Jesus, there is night. Without Jesus, there's darkness. So John 13, this is what we typically uh, kind of know of as kind of that last supper, that time, that last meal that they all had together and that Passover festival that they were celebrating. Among this celebration, this conversation is recorded, verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, could you imagine this? It's a, it's a meal of friends, they're all sitting, they're close friends. They've been traveling around every single day with one another for the past three years. You know, talk about, you know, like a, a camping trip of, of all this bonding that's been happening. Okay, these people have, have spent three years together. You talk about bonding, they have bonded really close. They knew that they could rely on each other. Yet Jesus says, one of them is going to betray him. Well, which one? They asked that question. In verse 25, one of his disciples asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give the piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas saw, I'm sorry, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And then in verse 30, we read this little interesting thing. As soon as as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. You know, you look at that and you might be thinking, you know, as you read this, why does just John all of a sudden just say, and it was night? Okay, what does that have anything to do with it? Well, John continues to talk about when you don't have Jesus, or if, in this case, planning to betray Jesus, nighttime is connected with that. Darkness is connected to that because Jesus is the light and Judas is trying to put out that light. Well, we've already been told from the very beginning of this gospel that the darkness is not going to overcome it. It's not going to put it out. It's not going to to overpower. No, the darkness isn't going to win, but there still is a nighttime here. We also see another time in John chapter 20. Now, this is technically like after Jesus is already raised from the dead, but nobody knows it yet. Okay, this is before they, they find it. They are coming to the tomb to discover it's empty. You know, the greatest news they're ever going to get, they're about to get it, but they haven't got it yet. Could you imagine how they're feeling at that time? Because everything about their whole world and and their faith and their trust has been put in Jesus Christ, and then he dies. What does that do to your faith? What does that do to your trust in Jesus, who was going to save you? How is he going to save you if he just died? Well, John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. 
and the rest of it from this verse on, you find out, yeah, it was still dark at that time because they didn't know about the light. They didn't know how great of something has just happened. But they found out about it right here. And the rest of it is just all this rejoicing about now that Jesus is raised up from the dead, things are different. Things have changed. The light has not only just come into the world, but, I mean, he's just conquered darkness entirely. And this darkness, you know, sometimes that can describe different stages in our own life. Sometimes we have periods of darkness. This was one of those periods of darkness. It was still dark at that time because they had lost some of that hope that they had had. They still loved Jesus, but they didn't have that hope to the same extent. But yet, when Jesus raised up from the dead and they find out about it, their hope is restored. And their, their faith is just uplifted and even more than what it was before. We find out that Peter makes statements kind of like this, and I think this is a good, good image uh, about our own faith and what we can put our faith in. So Peter, in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, he records these words in verses 19 and 20. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. See, Peter is, is giving a testimony, saying, look, we have Scripture. We know about Jesus from these Scriptures. We know that he was prophesied. We know that this light was prophesied about. And the light came. And the light conquered darkness. Yes, sometimes we still, we still do see darkness in the world. But even we ourselves have been called to be lights in this world of darkness. And that's what, what Peter is kind of getting at and recognizing, look, Scripture helps point you. These prophetic messages that God has given to us, it's a wonderful blessing that points toward Jesus Christ, that points toward this true uh, light. And we can be assured that whenever uh, we have come to see the light, that everything in our life is going to change. So in this, with this miracle, yeah, at that time that it happened, it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. But guess what? Jesus does join them back there in, in that miracle. He does come among them, and things do change, and they see great things in Jesus Christ. There's another comparison that we can see, and that is uh, between Moses and Jesus. Now, I kind of mentioned some of these things last week, but I want you to see that, that we even get a little bit more light into this uh, by comparing these two, uh, these two characters today. For instance, uh, Let's just kind of briefly run over some of these things you know about with, with Moses. Moses was a great guy um, and very much tied to the, the Old Testament, you know, the law of Moses. But when you look at the story of Moses, you'll find out some pretty cool things that happen there. For instance, you remember he's the guy that's connected with the Passover. I mean, he's the one who's given the, the, the different uh, statements about the, uh, the Passover and how they are supposed to observe the Passover. And he's the one through which, you know, the, uh, that he delivers that to the people. We also see that Moses is described as being this great prophet. And whenever you look at, at uh, his calling, it's, it's amazing uh, that, that God used uh, such a person like him to bring about such great things. Uh, God is great. And Moses was a, a wonderful prophet of God. We also find this interesting story where God reveals himself to Moses by saying, I am that I am. You know, that's the name that he gives himself. And, and we typically might call that today either Jehovah or Yahweh. We might pronounce it in those different ways. And, but uh, yeah, all that we're doing is we're just 
trying to say what I am is. That's what, that's what Jesus, I'm sorry, that's what the Lord says uh, to, to Moses is, I am that I am. That's my name. That's going to forever be my name. Moses is the one that gets that revelation, and he is the one that shares that uh, with the Israelites. We also see that uh, uh, after uh, he receives this, this name and knows the importance of that name, we see that Moses is also one that is connected to the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, you know, he's, he's the guy that, if you've seen the movies as I have, you know, he's the one holding up the staff and then the waters part. Uh, or if you've read the Bible, you know, you kind of, you get the same information there too. But that's what happens. He's the one through whom God used to part those waters and they crossed on dry ground. And then he's also the one through whom uh, the, the manna came. You know, the statements about the manna. Now, all of these things, I'm not trying to say that, that Moses is the one who did these things. No, no, no. God worked through Moses. However, let's, let's compare some of these things with Jesus' life. And you notice from John chapter 6 that a lot of these elements show up in this chapter. For instance, the Passover is mentioned in verse 4. It specifically states that this was around the time of the Passover festival. We also see that in verse 14, uh, Jesus is... Um, called by the people to be a prophet. You know, they recognize him as a prophet. The people of Jesus' day, they were expecting another prophet to come like Moses. Well, they're making a statement, look, this is the prophet that's like Moses. It's Jesus Christ. In um, chapter 6, verse 20, uh, whenever Jesus comes to them and talks to them, he says, but he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. That phrase, it is I, when you look at that phrase, it's the exact phrase as the I am. Whenever uh, Moses uh, received that name of God, it's the same uh, phrase that's used in both of them. When you look at the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you compare this verse right here of Exodus 3.14 with John 6.20. You see it's the exact same phrase that's used in both places because Jesus is making this statement. He is the I am. He's not just stating you know, look, I'm here. Don't be afraid. Everything's going to be okay. He's stating more than that. He's stating, I am is here. It's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. That's that statement that, that Jesus makes. And if you notice, he walks on the water. Now, I would remind you, this is very similar to the crossing of the Red Sea. So we see some similarities. However, at the Red Sea, if you remember, the, the waters parted and they crossed on dry ground. Well, this time... Jesus is walking on the water as if it's dry ground. It isn't, but he's walking on it as if it is. It's another kind of uh, comparison that we see with Jesus and Moses in uh, this chapter right here. And then shortly after this, a few verses down in verse 32, they have this conversation about manna from heaven. And Jesus talks about that manna and, and how the heavenly father is the one that gives them this bread from heaven. So, uh, you know, Several of these things, and this is kind of a handful of them, but there's several of them in this chapter that compare Jesus with Moses and show that, that Jesus, in, in every way that Moses was great, Jesus is even better. Um, we also see that there's a lot of these comparisons, and Jesus is making this statement, especially about that I am statement. He's making the statement that he is God, and that's important. You know, he's not just like Moses. He's not just a servant of God. No, he's the son of God. He is God who has come. And many people, many Christians, see a connection with this miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And Psalm 77, uh, 
I'll read it to you and maybe you see if you make, uh, make a connection or not as well. Listen to these words talking about God. And keep in mind when Jesus gets to the people, one of the first things he says is, it is I. I am. That's what he says. So listen to these uh, verses. Psalm 77 verse 14. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now that last phrase, in case you didn't catch the context of it, that last phrase shows us, yeah, this whole passage is talking about when God led them during the time of Moses and Aaron. However, look at verse 19 there, talking about this path. Your path, talking about God's path. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Many people see that Jesus is really kind of enacting these verses. And that's exactly what he's doing, that his path was through the waters. He came to the disciples and he is sharing with them that he is more than just a great prophet. He is the I am. Who we believe Jesus is has so much to do with, with our connection with him. And it has much to do with the message that we proclaim. And it also has much to do with this third and the final comparison that we'll look at. This third and final comparison is that of fear versus faith. Going back to verses 19 and 20. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. So one of the statements that Jesus makes to them is to not be afraid. That's so important for us to hear that message as well, about us to not be afraid. Um, now, none of us, I don't think, can really fault them in verse 19 for being afraid. If you were in a boat and you were three or four miles away from the shore and all of a sudden somebody starts walking toward the boat, almost any one of us might have at least a little fear about what's going on or what's about to happen. But Jesus' message at that point is, it's I, it's the I am. Don't be afraid. Trust right now. That's the importance here. So fear versus faith. What are you led by? It's an important question for us all to ask ourselves. Are we motivated? Are, are we motivated by fear? Or is our motivation more along lines of faith? Let me share with you Psalm 46, beginning in verse 1. Which reads, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and, roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. No matter what we see in this life, that doesn't change verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, that God is our refuge. No matter what type of storms you can encounter. God is your refuge. God is your strength. He is an ever-present help in trouble. Not just sometimes present. Not just every once in a while present. No, ever-present help in trouble. 
Therefore, because of that, we will not fear. That's what we're called to. That is so different than, than living your life in fear. Sometimes uh, Christians do that. They live their life in fear. Hopefully, we will not be uh, in that same category. Hopefully, we will not live our, our life in fear. No, no, no. We will live our life in faith because we know who our God is. And we know who Jesus Christ is. And we understand the importance of faith in our life. In the New Testament, we see so many passages passages, dozens and dozens of passages that talk about how important faith is, how necessary faith is, how necessary is that, that belief and that trust in Jesus in order for us to have salvation. One of those passages in Ephesians chapter 2 speaks about faith like this. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This passage speaks volumes about this faith that we are called to have. It speaks volumes about God's mercy, God's grace, and how much he has, has given it to us. How, how wonderful that is to know what the grace of God is about. This is how we are saved. Look again at verse 8, and it says that it is by grace that you have been saved. It's only by the grace of God that we've been saved. It's through our faith. It's not in and of ourselves. No, it's this gift of God. God is the one who gives us. And in this faith that we have in God, we can rest assured that he will bring us through whatever life troubles might come our way. That's the message that Jesus was giving these people on, on the boat. You know, he walked to them and he, he shared with them, I am here, God his presence is here with you. You don't need to be afraid. Fear versus faith. Faith is always going to be on top. It's always going to triumph. And God has prepared these things in advance for us to do. He knew what he was going to do. He knew the importance of faith and trust. He knew that our part, that's what it meant. That it meant your part is to have faith in God, to trust him that whatever he says to do or don't do, that's what you need to do or don't do, depending on what God has said. That's what it means to have faith. That even though we don't always know the final destination, we know that we can get there through Jesus Christ. And I can't help but also maybe kind of see there's an interesting connection that after Jesus gets into the boat, they all of a sudden find themselves at their destination. Maybe there's even another lesson there. That whenever we do invite Jesus in and whenever we are willing to, to go in the same direction that Jesus is, is asking us to go into, perhaps we will get at our destination maybe a little bit sooner than what we have expected, even though they clearly had no idea they were, they were so close to it. I don't know if they even were that close to it yet. But whenever they invited Jesus in and went with him, alongside of him, then they were there at their destination where they needed to be. So what about your own life? 
Have you done that in your own life? Have you allowed Jesus to come into the boat to get past that fear that you've had? And with these comparisons that we've looked at this morning, the the answers are clear. We've been called to walk in the light just as God is in the light. We've also been called to trust in Jesus, the great I am, not in just some, some man. Men can do great things, and they can be wonderful friends and companions and all for us and and to help us. But yet, when it comes down to it, God is really the focus. Jesus, he is that I am. And we also see in this final one that we've been called to have faith in God, to trust in God, and he will allow us to get to our destination. We've got to be willing to take that journey. We've got to be willing to have this trust, this faith, this belief in God that he will take us there.